Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Holy Father, thank you for life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. That we have not earned our way or worked our way into your good grace, but that you have given us grace because of your good love for us. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross and the victory of Christ in his resurrection and all that that means for us, Father. Would you apply it to us even now, uh, Father, as we get into your word and as we think about um, the truth of what you've taught, um, what you've left us with, and what you desire for your church. Father, would you be glorified in us, in all things. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy. Uh, this is our third week in chapter three. And I know that may seem a little bit crazy, but I promise you, we are going to get to chapter four. Uh, so you can rest easy and rest assured that we are gonna get there. Uh, we spent three weeks here for a couple of reasons. One is, I think our world is so confused when it comes to this idea of leadership, especially leadership in the church and what it looks like. And we come from different backgrounds and we hear different things. And we are in a season in terms of life of our church where we are officially appointing leaders for our church over the next year. And so we wanted to invest some good amount of, a good amount of time there. But the other reason is that I felt like we needed to take some time to do some groundwork because there's just a lot of unhealthy views of church leaders in the world and either elevating them as celebrities or undervaluing them as meaningless. And so we can go to one of these two extremes and we tend to vacillate depending on our background and where we've been. Uh, I really would encourage you, we've kind of, the, the three weeks we've built to, or we've looked at this over the last th- uh, three weeks really have built up to kind of where we are today and kind of laid the groundwork for that. And so uh, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because we're going to kind of build on the foundation this week that we set last week. One of the things we said last week was there is one head of the church. His name is Jesus. And we as the church are the body of Christ and every one of us has a role to play. In fact, we're all equal so that the eye can't say to the ear, you don't matter. Uh, We can't look and go only the eyes or the mouth matters, but really we all have a role to play. We're all part of this thing called the body of Christ and many members make up this thing called the church that we use this image that the scriptures give us of the body and the body functions and it works well together so that every part operates and we build ourselves up and we grow when every part of the church is functioning in a healthy sort of way. But we all matter, we're all of great value and yet God has, uh, as we get to today, we'll see that though we're all part of one body, God has appointed some to lead in different roles. And so we get to that here in 1 Timothy 3, and that's what we've been looking at over the last couple weeks. So in 1 Timothy 3, verse 13, it says this, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So these are kind of house rules. This is how we're to function in the household of God or in the church. And Paul writes this to us, and verse 13 comes right after he mentions 
two official offices that are uh, in the life of the church. He mentions elders and he mentions deacons. And so he, coming out of those, he says, look, the churches have elders that are overseers that help direct and guide the church. The churches have deacons that execute ministry of the church. And in that, this, I write these things to you so you know how you ought to structure the church. So God has not left us kind of unsure of exactly how it is that we are to operate. And yet he's given us an awful lot of flexibility in how we are to work that out. Part of the brilliance, I think, of the scriptures is that it gives us these principles that we're to, we're to live in and it gives us these guidelines and these structures. And yet there's a lot of flexibility in terms of the form and how we are to work that out so that in each culture, in each, in each town, in each time, we get to apply that in, in the way that's best for that day. Now, friends, this study of 1 Timothy has a lot of implications for us. One, it means that every Christian is meant to be attached to and invested in a local body called a church. That every one of us is to be a contributor, that we're to be kind of linked arms with other people in this family that God has ordained as a church. It also means each person who calls himself or herself a Christian is in a specific relationship with the church that's led by elders that help oversee that church. And so there's a relationship that God has ordained sovereignly that this is the way this ought to work. And so in that, it tells us something about the way in which we need to operate. So today we're gonna look at this thing. Uh, we're, hopefully we're gonna take a step forward in understanding God's intention for the church, specifically in the leadership for the church. But I want you to know the principles we're gonna look at today for servant leadership really apply to all of us. All of us lead in different ways, not necessarily in an official role in a church, but uh, mamas, you lead in your home. Office, uh, many of us lead at the office. Many of us lead in uh, different relationships and friendships that we have. We lead on serve teams. We lead in groups. We lead in different ways. So a lot of the things I'm going to talk about, I think, apply to those other scenarios as well. And so I think this will be encouraging for all of us. And maybe for some of you, you don't feel like a leader. And you look at this list of qualifications and you think, man, like, I don't, can anyone ever measure up to that? I want you to know the sermon's for you because it, I think will encourage you. I think for some of us, you desire to be an elder, and maybe you want to be an elder, but you look at it and go, man, I still feel like there's some things that are kind of holding me back or pulling me down and keeping me from really engaging these things. Others of you, um, you, you really, maybe you're just skeptical. And, and this whole idea of leaders, especially in the church, just kind of feels kind of gross to you. And you just look at things you've seen in the world and you just think, man, I, I don't think I want any part of that. I think this is going to encourage you too. And maybe there's some of you that do aspire to leadership of the church and you want to know what that is. And so, and you're going to move deeper into understanding of some of what it is that we are going to talk about. So we're going to look at three keys for servant leadership today. Three keys for servant leadership. Christ as the head of the church has given some to the church who are both fellow strugglers in the church as sinners, just like everyone else, and yet also set apart as servant leaders over the church or in the church um, for the benefit of the church. So we're going to look a little more at that dance in just a minute. But let me tell you the two offices we're talking about. When you look at 1 Timothy 3, he talks about elders and he talks about deacons. This shows up again in Titus 1 and you see it elsewhere in the New Testament. But really this is, uh, the, the list here in verse 3 talks about what we call often, often referred to as qualifications. This is kind of a job description. And we said two weeks ago, it really focuses more on character than it does on skills or abilities. It focuses more on the heart and who we are than it does on what it is we're to do or the, 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 the capacity with which, with which we're supposed to operate. 
So what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? An elder is, uh, this, this term elders interchangeably used in the Bible. Sometimes it says overseer. Sometimes it refers to as shepherd or a pastor. And these words are kind, of thrown, are kind of go back and forth and used in different ways as you get into the New Testament. But really these are the leaders that are responsible for guiding the church for guarding the church from false teachers, from, from, for advancing the mission of the church. And so they're kind of the, the global leaders that are overseeing the whole and directing kind of where this thing is supposed to go. That's the term we use for elders. Now, the second role that, that he mentions here, and I should say elders are, are, are called to direct the, the doctrine and the philosophy and the direction of the ministry as a whole. Uh, deacons, on the other hand, are the executors of the mission. And so they're the ones that are kind of the sergeants on the ground that are kind of making sure that this thing's happening and effectively being worked out in the actual life of the church. And a deacon, <clears throat> this term just means humble service. It's uh, those who are designated or commissioned by the elders for a specific task in order to make sure that that ministry flourishes and does well. And so these two things work together. And uh, the deacon... One man said, deacons serve the body with sensitivity, efficiency, compassion, and skill. They're, they're the ones that are actually effectively making things happen um, in terms of the life of the church. Now, if you have questions about the importance of any of these guys or the skill with which they do this, look at Acts 7. Uh, look at uh, this man named Stephen. Uh, these, these leaders that are set apart to care for the widows there in the church. And there's this, these roles, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, that elders look and there's widows that need to be provided for but are not being provided for. And so there's actually some racial tension, there's some conflict, there's things that are happening. And the elders say, look, we need to focus our priorities on preaching and on prayer, but we need to make sure this gets done. So let's appoint seven men to go do this. One of them is Stephen. If you want to see what a, what a deacon looks like, look at the sermon Stephen preaches and look at Stephen in the face of being stoned to death and just see what a remarkable man this was that was help ex executing the life of the church. These are oftentimes what deacons do. Now, deacon's not just a person that's helping out, but there's someone who is actually bearing the weight of the ministry. They stepped in and said, I'm going to accept responsibility to make sure this happens. And so that's really what a deacon is. So how do you get these kinds of leaders? Well, there's two aspects you see biblically. One is there's a sense of calling, and two, there's a sense of confirmation. When you think of calling, there's a sense of there's something internal in them that desires to do these things. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, uh, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and then you get down to verse 8, and it talks about deacons, it says, likewise also deacons, meaning if anyone also aspires to the office of deacons, there's something that is internally kind of compelling for them. The word there is actually means a compassionate compulsion to do something. Verse 1 says, that's a noble pursuit. It's a noble thing, not to have ambition, but to have an aspiration to lead within the church and to be a part of advancing the mission of the church. So first, this is something that they want. And so elders and deacons are, are meant to desire this. First Peter 5 says it this way. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. It needs to be something you want to do. My old seminary profs used to say, uh, if, if, if you want people to bleed for something, you have to hemorrhage for something. 
And that's kind of what he's saying is you need to lead by example. You need to put yourself out there. It needs to be something that you're hungry for, that you desire to do. John Calvin, you want to go back a little bit. Let's go back about 500 years. John Calvin said, it's a great undertaking to represent God's son in the building up and extending of God's kingdom. In looking at, after the salvation of the souls of people whom God himself had brought, bought with his own blood. And in ruling the church, which is God's inheritance. It has to be something that others can affirm and apply to them. And it's something that can be confirmed, but it's also something that they're appointed to. And so biblically what you see is leaders are appointed. Uh, this, this is not a popularity contest. This isn't a representative democracy. This isn't like when you're running for class office in high school and you wanted to be president. And so you're coming up with campaign slogans. Uh, that's not this kind of thing. This isn't kind of an America's Got Talent deal where we have a talent show and like, let's rate everyone. And, you know, this isn't like Madden guys. Where you look and like, man, what's your score? Are you 98? Are you 97? Like, what's your rating? And then everyone, you're like, well, those are our guys. That's not really the way this is intended to work. In fact, Titus 1 says, uh, Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in, into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul tells Timothy, um, do not lay hands on a leader too quickly. And that's a confirmation time. It's a time where uh, when they talk about laying hands on someone, it's this public uh, ceremony where they would actually kneel and they would put their hands on them and they would affirm them publicly and say, the authority has been transferred to these that are called to lead. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, it says they fasted and prayed and then they appointed leaders uh, as, they, as they felt led. And so you see this kind of appointing thing and it's not something to be taken lightly. Let me ask you this, moms. Um, how many of you love to leave your kids behind and go away and leave town? And you feel completely confident in that all the time. And how many of you just kind of take out and out of the paper, go, hey, anyone want to watch my kids? Like, I just need someone. I'll pay you. If you show up, I'll give you my kids. I'll entrust you to them and I'll leave town and I'll feel totally confident. No, you don't. Man, you vet those people, don't you? Like, if you're going to trust someone to take care of your most prized possession in the world, if you're going to appoint someone to that task, it's something that, man, you are on it. And you want to make sure that this person's trustworthy. You check references, you do calls, you ask someone, have they ever actually held, handled a child before? Have they, you know, like you want to know before you appoint them to the task of overseeing the most prized thing in your life that these are trustworthy people. It's the same thing when you look at, when you look at uh, really what we're talking about in the elders of the church. Christ died for the church. Christ loves the church. Christ wants to entrust the church to people that will love the church as well. So these are the roles we're talking about. Here's what I want to do the rest of the time. I really want us to focus on what is the heart of servant leadership? What is the heart behind the things that we're called to do and we're called to be? Uh, when you think about these kinds of, uh, these kind of roles, as we think of, it's kind of servant leadership is this title that we use. And it, it means it's not just like uh, normal, like worldly leadership. Worldly leadership is oftentimes top down. Servant leadership we see is, is really the opposite. Christ puts himself at the bottom and serves those who, who, are, uh, who are under his care. And so it's less about being on stage and more about kneeling down in service. It's people that would say less of me, Lord, but more of you is really what we're looking for. And so I want us to, to look at this image and just think about really three images. We're gonna talk about three different relationships where leaders need to learn to kneel in an important sort of a way. And I think these pictures, I hope, will give you an image of what a servant leader that you can trust ought to look like. Now, as you think about this, 
Um, I, I was reading a book this week called Strong and Weak by a guy named Andy Crouch, and I don't have time to break all this down, but he made this point that for me was really helpful and looked at and, and really applied to some of the things I was talking about. He was saying oftentimes we think of leadership and we think of kind of the spectrum that goes from one side that's strong authority and another side that's strong vulnerability. And, and we think that you either go in one direction or the other, and you think about leadership and say, well, which side do you land on? Do you land on more of the authoritative side or more of the vulnerable kind of personal side? Um, and so we create this kind of a false dichotomy between those two things. And he says, actually, it's not one or the other. It's actually a both and. That the communities where people are truly flourishing have a combination of both authority and vulnerability. And so if you think of it not as a line that goes this way, I should have brought my board out and done some more drawing like I did last week. If you think of it as a line that goes this way, it's really not that. He says, it's more a line that's like this. And you think of going up and to the right, and it's this quadrant up here where flourishing really happens. And as authority goes up, along with vulnerability going up, there's actually greater health and flourishing that happens. Let me show you how this works in a family. Think about this. Do you know families that, man, they are just rigid? Their rules, like they have it written down there. They are on it. And you just know, like, here's the rules. Here's the standards. Here's what it is. And that authority is really clear in that family, but maybe there's not so much warmth. And, and so that's maybe one extreme of total focus on the authority. And there's families that operate that way. And they provide some structure and some good things, but they also are missing some things. Now there's other families that, man, they are all best friends. And the, the mom is like the best buddy of everyone. And they do these things, but maybe they're not really good at executing rules and at actually creating structures and creating uh, consistent plans for things. And so there's a little bit of a wishy-washiness to it, but everything's, but there's a lot of happiness but maybe not a lot of effectiveness. See, that's the other extreme over here. And when you think about parenting, you really need a combination of both, right? Like you need some structure, you need some guidelines, you need some rules, you need some boundaries, you need some ways of doing things that are clearly communicated and are effective in order for that family to really operate at the highest effective level. But it also needs to be warmth. It doesn't need to be cold. It needs to be a place where there's a relational connection. That's really what we're talking about. And I think when I think uh, about the scriptures, who models that better than Jesus? No one at all. But it, it's interesting when you start thinking about Jesus' leadership and really how he operated and how he functioned. One minute, Jesus is in the temple and he's like overthrowing tables and rushing, running the money changers out of the temple. And there's this kind of like strong authoritative thing where he's saying, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and we're not gonna operate this way. And there's this kind of aggressive force that shows up. And then the next minute, he's sitting down and the disciples, he's saying, hey, let the kids come to me. I want to hang out with the little guys. And he's sitting there. There's one moment where he's confronting a religious false teacher and he's saying, listen, you brood of vipers. And then like in the very next breath, he's taking a woman who's being caught in adultery and giving the most gentle, gracious response to her ever. And one minute he's standing up and he's teaching with authority and they're going, and I've never seen anyone teach with authority like this. And the next minute he's washing someone's feet. And there's this weird combination of kind of this authority, but this vulnerability on Jesus' part. Where at one point he goes off to a place and he's gonna pray and he's seeking these things and he's asking God for the kingdom and all this stuff. And then another moment he's saying, man, guys, I'm so broken. I can't hardly do this. Would you just pray for me? And why are you falling asleep? I need your help. And there's this vulnerable kind of side to him as well. And in that, I think we see really that Jesus is our model for what we wanna be in the church. So when we talk about, leadership in the local church. We're talking about loving and leading like Christ. That ultimately is what we want to be about. So let's get into these three images of kneeling uh, before uh, kneel, kneeling in, in terms of our, our servant leadership. The first one is kneeling before the Father. 
was reading this week um, and just going back and reflecting on a book that I'd read a long time ago and really deals with the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son? In, uh, in Luke chapter 15, you see this, this story that Jesus is telling and the context Jesus is telling it is, he's actually dealing with a leadership conversation. He's talking to these religious leaders and Jesus is hanging out with sinners and, and, and those that are kind of outsiders of the church and the inside of the church are coming going, Jesus, you're not doing this leadership thing well. Uh, something's a little bit off and Jesus stops and tells a story. He tells a story about a lost son, a son who in the midst of, uh, comes to his father, this young man comes to his father and says, look, I really want my inheritance now. I would really like to go my own way and do my own thing. Father gives it to him. He goes off says, to a faraway country. And as he goes off to a faraway country, he begins to squander all the things that his father had given him. And in the midst of that, that begins to make some bad choices is really living a, a self-driven life. And he's experiencing all kinds of pleasure, but he's empty. And he ultimately comes around a place and says, man, I have great need. And my father's servants are better provided for than I can provide for myself. He's they're lost among the slop of the pig. And so he comes home. And when he comes, when he's on his way home, going back to his father, uh, I mean, I love this scenario. And you can almost feel it when you read it. But he's, it says that as he's going, he's thinking in his mind and mulling over the things that he's going to say. You know that, that feeling of when you know you're caught, when you know you're busted, when you know you've blown it at work and you've got to go into your boss and say, man, like this project didn't go well and you're trying to come up with the right argument, and you're, you're just scared, and you're a little bit ashamed, and you're embarrassed, and you're trying to figure out, how do I posture myself to try to make this as painless as possible? And you just see the agony of this guy as he comes in, and what happens? When he gets there, he begins to make a speech. and says, Father, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to even be this. And the father just puts his hand and says, stop. And it says that the father embraced him, puts his arms around him, and he puts shoes on his feet, to care for his physical needs. He puts a robe around him to care, to cover up the mess of his life. He puts a ring on his finger that says, you're relationally now my son again and you're connected to me. And then he throws him a party and a celebration. And there's this kind of ecstatic moment that takes place. Uh, Rembrandt's painting of this is, is pretty astounding. And I want us just to look at this for a minute. And here's my question for you. As you look at this painting, you see the prodigal kneeling there. And the, the focus of that painting really is on the, the father, and look at the hands resting upon the son. Think what it'll be like to be that son, to come home in shame, to come home as a mess, to come home having wrecked everything in your life, to come home completely needy, completely broken, and just to kneel before the father and have the father just say, stop, you're my son. And he puts his hands on him, and there's this embrace that takes place there. That when I look at that painting, it's just powerful. You think, man, does, do we not all need to know what it is to kneel before the Father? To know the love of God. This is the story Jesus told about leadership. This is what he says my Father is like. This is what life in my kingdom is like. And the question I have for you is, have you ever stopped preparing for your encounter with God? Have you ever stopped your speech? that you're trying to justify yourself before God? Have you ever gotten to the place where you no longer feel like you need to make a claim for why God ought to love you, but you just have learned to kneel, just get down on your knees and just know that his grace is enough, that his love is enough for you? See, I think before we can lead others, we have to, before we can give away something, we have to receive something. 
And, and we have to receive grace before we can offer it. Do you know, friends, what it is to be loved by God? Have you ever put yourself in that place where you've knelt before the Father and, and felt his hands of his love and his grace upon you? And just to rest in that and just to know that you are loved as his child and that there's no explanation you need to give there's no validation you need to seek. There's no self-justification. But you can just rest in the care of the Father. That's where I think leadership starts in the church. It starts by receiving from him before we have anything of ourselves to give. And here's the danger, I think, if we don't know how to do that. Elsewhere, Jesus tells us that he came for the sick, not for the healthy. And here's what he meant by that. He didn't mean that any of us are really healthy and don't need him. What he's saying is it, he can't help you if you don't realize you need his help. And so if you, don't really, if you don't start off in a place of recognizing your own brokenness, your own sinfulness, your own need for grace, your own fact that you've tried to do it all on your own and fallen in your face over and over and over, and you need to come home and just go, I can't do it. And he goes, that's good because I love you. And, and I can do it all for you. In fact, I have done it all for you. Jesus did it for us. That's important for us to do. Look at the older brother in the painting. And you look at uh, this picture of him. It's the character over there on the right. Uh, that, that's the older brother. Um, what do you see in his face? See, in the story in Luke 15, what happens is the older brother, when the younger brother comes home and the father embraces him and they kick up the music and the house music's starting to thump a little bit and they go out and he starts to smell the, the calf that's being cooked and starts to smell the food he's out in the fields and he's standing out and as he comes in, he grabs a servant. He doesn't run in and go, sweet, a party. I'm gonna jump in on that thing. He stays over here and he goes, hey, what's going on over there? And he asks someone a question. And the father, just like the father went out to the younger son and embraced him, the father comes out and it says that the father entreated the older brother to come home. And yet the older brother, what does he do? Well, let's look at his words. In, in Luke 15, he says this. Uh, it says, but he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father and said, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me, you never even gave me a young goat uh, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he was devoured your property with prostitutes to kill the fatty calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this was your brother was dead, is alive. He was lost and he's found. The older brother didn't want to come in. And so you notice in the picture, when I look at that face, man, you see how measured he is, how cold he is, how he's looking down. Rembrandt has him looking down on the scene. Is he engaging his lost brother with love and with, with affection? No, there's a sense of his self-justification, his self-righteousness, his looking down and saying, look, I can justify myself. I've done all the right things. And so there's a coldness. And see, Jesus is warning, I think, in that parable uh, that we don't want to lead like the older brother. In fact, when you think about um, the, the older brother, he's distant, he's self-righteous, he's joyless. He doesn't know how to throw a party. He doesn't, he doesn't love grace the way the younger brother has learned to do that. So friends, as we think about leaders, the first thing I think we want to look for is we want to look at people who kneel before the Father, people who receive grace, people who have come to love grace experientially, not just intellectually. Like grace is not just, they can give you three verses on it and quote a theological statement. Like they can't just go, well, God riches at Christ's expense. Like that's the thing I was taught to say. But they actually experientially 
love the grace of God because they know experientially they need the grace of God. They know experientially what it is to come and have nothing to offer, but to get down on their knees and just say, well, God, I just need you. And so there's a sense of desperation that creates this kind of vulnerability and compassion. When you've received grace, you can extend grace to others. Because we don't want leaders who are like travel agents selling tickets to places they've never been. We want people that know grace and so they can offer grace to others. In fact, 1 Thessalonians says this about leaders. It says, we share not only the gospel with you, but our very selves. They're champions of grace personally in their own lives and how they operate. And so there's a, they bring a sense of humility and a sense of compassion to leadership because they've, they kneel before the Father and receive love from him. So let's look at, that's the first thing I think we need to look for when we think about this whole idea is we, we want men who have, and women who, have, who are kneeling before the Father that, that help to lead out as deacons and men who lead out as elders who kneel before the Father. So the second area that we look at here is that we're looking for those who would kneel before the church. This is a different kind of kneeling and it really comes from a different demeanor. This is one that operates a little more out of, uh, out of strength instead of out of weakness. This is one that's gonna operate a little more out of, uh, out of um, kind of the, the confidence uh, and conviction rather than out of brokenness and need. Uh, it's interesting as we look at the, the qualifications for, uh, for elders in my, and we talked about that in my small group this week, one of the guys said, these are guys who are just proven. They've proven themselves over time and, and they, they've bear the, the kind of the, the scars of life enough that they aren't kind of wishy-washy about the way things go. They're, they have some confidence about them. Um, it's not just a checklist of performance, but there's a confidence of character and conviction that's been shaped by God's presence. So, and you look at 1 Timothy 3, it says this in verse 10, it says, let them also be tested first. So these are men who are supposed to be tested. We know we're saved by grace, but leaders are to be proven. They're to be tested. And you, you see, Paul will say to Timothy elsewhere, he says, do not lay hands on someone too rashly or too quickly. Meaning, wait, give it some space. Give it some time. Watch. See how they, see how they handle themselves over time. We need, we need calendar cycles to go around so that you see someone walk through the ups and downs of life that you've seen them weather the storms. You've seen how they operate when they're spiritually dry. You've seen when, uh, when they begin to give in to sin. Do they repent of their own accord or do they repent only when they're caught? And you begin to see these, uh, these patterns of life that develop. Do they, have they learned to trust that, man, when I don't have enough financially, can it, have I seen God provide for me in a way that I've learned to trust him even when I aren't sure of exactly where to, how to move forward? And so we're told that both elders and deacons need to be tested. Now, it's interesting, the word here for tested is not kind of this nitpicking, harping sort of thing. Like, you know those teachers that look, it's like they're just dying to find places to put red on your paper. Like, you ever have those teachers in school? Where it's like, you do anything and they're like, you know, and they're just putting red. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is, it's, you're, they're being tested, but in hopes of the person being successful. They're being tested in, in desiring that this person would thrive and do well. Uh, the word means to examine. It could also uh, be translated watching. Uh, this, this word's often used in trades and in, uh, in the crafting of metals. It was the most reliable way to prove that a coin was authentic. So back in the day when they used actual metals for particular metals for different coins, they could test that that coin was the, was the real deal by uh, the way in which they heated it up to a point of melting and examined its behavior 
under, whenever it went through the heating process to see if it was legit. Um, and that'll preach, won't it? When you think about leaders, that when life begins to heat up, when things begin to get a little difficult, you want to see what, what comes out in the midst of those kinds of things because that reveals your character. In fact, many writers in that day used that word to term, that term to speak of warriors who were tested in battle under adversity. These are battle-tested men. These are men who bear the scars and the wounds of life and have come out the other side and can testify to what God's ability to carry them through those things. Uh, that's the end of the picture that we're meant to have. And it's not because of their own strength. In fact, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So they've learned to walk with the Lord, to trust the Lord, to abide in the Lord, to lean on the Lord, to rely upon him, to, 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 to entrust their, their lives and their well-being to him in a way that's built them up over time. So friends, when you think about leaders that have been proven and battle-tested and uh, kind of established in this kind of a way, this is not just someone filling a volunteer slot. This is someone who, and they're an ambassador for Christ. They're those that see themselves as carrying the mantle of the glory of God in the world, and they want to thrive and to do those things. They don't just skip out when the schedule gets a little busy. When things become a little bit tough, they begin to wander away. These are people that when things get tough, they still show up. They're still there and they're still prevalent. Whenever things become a little, whenever there comes some conflict to the surface, these are people that, and they, they didn't just duck and run, but they leaned in and worked through that. They leaned in the tension at different times. They're someone who has felt the weight of ministry and yet seen it flourish and grow. And not necessarily numerically, but in terms of its ability to honor God. And so uh, the warning here is take time to test the people that are coming to lead. And then, so it may take training. It may mean introducing them. It may mean evaluating them and opening up to the body and saying, hey, do you have any reason why we should, um, why we should have concern here? And so there's a sense in which there's a strength to coming, coming out of this. So this is why we don't take guys right out of seminary and put them uh, over the whole church. Uh, you know, seminary really means, uh, it comes from, awkwardly enough, semen, airy. It comes from seedlings. It comes from that which is just beginning. So you think of a, a little uh, plant that's the seedling that's just beginning to grow, uh, but it really has not established deep roots and deep life. And so we can't take a seedling and expect it to be this strong, mature thing. You're going to crush them, but you're also going to hurt the church. You know, you take guys who are students. I remember uh, working uh, oftentimes with students at, a, at another church. And in that context, you'd have these guys that come in and, man, they knew their books. They knew the stuff in the library. They knew their theology. They knew their stuff. And they'd come in and just start spouting stuff off at you. But they didn't really know how to apply it to life. They didn't really know how to do that. They were great in a library, but they weren't necessarily great dealing with uh, the, the kind of nuances of life and relationships. And they needed to be matured because... Um, guess what? People don't always do what you want them to do. Like you can take a book and you can shut it when you want it to, but you can't shut a person. And so you have to learn to apply this thing in the mess of life. And so it takes some weathering and some learning. And you're gonna have to learn to apply this with oil field workers and with CEOs that are used to getting their own way and with mothers that have crazy kids that are screaming all the time and they're exhausted. You're gonna have to learn to apply this to people that have just been diagnosed with cancer and people that have lost jobs and people that are going through all kinds of hardships, people that are struggling with addiction and people that think they don't have any problems, but you know that they do. And you've got to figure out how do you apply these things to those scenarios and those life. And you want to watch someone and say, man, can this guy serve in kids ministry? 
can this guy serve um, whenever um, junior high kids are going nuts and things are feel a little bit out of control? And can he, can he pray with a school teacher? Can he, uh, can he sit down and laugh with a mechanic? Can he work with all kinds of different people in the ups and downs of life in flexible ways that, uh, that just apply the grace of God to those different scenarios? So to do that, you've got to learn to really trust God in all kinds of different ways. John 15, Christ says, abide with me and you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This is someone that they've learned to abide in Christ in a way that causes flourishing. Galatians 5, keep in step with the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit, but walk with the Spirit, that you might produce the fruit of the Spirit. So in the midst of life, this kind of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-righteousness, I forget one, uh, faithfulness, self-control, begins to come out of you over time. It takes time for fruit to grow. I've got a friend who uh, just has these amazing gardens and all these things that he does. And he lives in Seattle and he's got this perfect scenario and he's got all this stuff. And he remember him telling me one day, he goes, man, I got my first bud on this one, this one plant that, we've, that we planted. He goes, it takes seven years before anything shows up. And I'm like, dude, I can't, I can't cultivate that kind of stuff. Like I look at that, I'm like, dude, you planted something and watered it for knowing that it, nothing was gonna happen for seven years? And he did. And there's fruit that just takes time. So um, these are people who have been tested and they've gone through the storms of life and weathered the storms and suffered through dry spells and everything else. But in that, there's a strengthening that happens when you go through testing, isn't there? There's something that, that begins to, to build you up over time and you begin to understand what that looks like. It's interesting when you look at the church, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevent it, prevail against it. He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's interesting when you look at uh, Paul to Titus talking to uh, another guy, and this is an area where he's talking about leadership in the church, and he's talking about specifically elders and, and what leaders are supposed to be. And in, to Titus, he, he says, and you see these strong statements throughout the whole New Testament. He says, Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. See, within the church, there's supposed to be leaders who bear strength and conviction, and they've been given authority by Christ to lead within the church and operate in a certain way. And so we need strength, people who are gonna drive the mission forward, people that are gonna advance the mission, people that are gonna see that we are continually pushing out to, to, to see God's kingdom advance. And so we need to see this kind of thing. We need guys who, um, who kneel before the church. And when you think of this kind of kneeling, this is more like a knighthood, a knighthood or commissioning. This is a kneeling before the church where there's this bestowing of, of trust upon them and saying, look, we are depending on you to advance the mission of the church for the good of Christ's kingdom. And so there's an authority that comes with that. But do you see how these two things have to go together? This kneeling before the Father in vulnerability so that you are grace and compassionate and there's a sense of being very aware of your own weakness. And then combined with that, there's a sense of strength, conviction, that God over time has built you up and you've learned to trust him so that you can lead out of knowing God is faithful and that he will carry this thing forward. We need both. We need to kneel before the Father and we need to kneel before the church. Lastly, let's look at one last kneeling. This is kneeling before people. Luke <clears throat> 22 says, Jesus is talking. He says this, whoever wishes to be great among you must be servant of all. 
A dispute also arose among his disciples as to which one of them was regarded, was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who, those who are in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest of you be, uh, become as the youngest and the leader is the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It's not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. This kneeling is the kneeling of someone who washes the feet of others. See, one of the last acts Jesus committed was that before he died, he came in front of his disciples. And this ragtag group of guys, some of them were jockeying for position. Some of them were trying to manipulate Jesus so they could be at the right hand and left hand of him when they came into the kingdom. Some, Judas was about to betray him, stab him in the back and sell him to someone else. Peter was too prideful and said, no, you don't need to wash me. I am you know, and, and resisted it. And yet this ragtag group of guys, Jesus knelt down before them and he took off his outer garment and he began to wash the nastiness of their feet. And he did it out of service and out of humility. And he did it out of his own vulnerability, but he also did it out of his own strength. And see, when you have, when you, when you know what it is to be vulnerable and you know what it is to have strength, you're freed up to serve and not have yourself tossed back and forth. But what you see in Jesus here is Jesus had this confidence that he was able to get down on his knees and says, look, I'm your master, but if I as your master and wanted to serve you, then how much more would you as a servant need to follow in the footsteps of your master? We're all called to serve. And so as you think about leadership, as you think about what it means to lead out of, um, out of kind of lead in a sacrificial way, in some ways, it's, it's going to look a lot like this, that we need to first kneel before the Father and receive grace so that we have something to give. We need to kneel before the church so that we receive the confirmation and affirmation that gives us the strength to lead out um, with, uh, with conviction. But we also need to ultimately come before people who are broken, who are sinful, and just love them, just serve them, just meet them where they are. What I love about Jesus here is this different group of people that are all coming from different places, that he just makes his way around slowly and says, let me, just, let me just serve you. Let me just meet your needs. And even when they didn't want it, um, he did so. Even when they didn't think they needed it, he was there to serve them. He insisted upon it. Even when they were going to betray him, he was there and he served them and he loved them. If I could tell you anything from 20 years of ministry, that's what leadership requires. That's what it demands. You're going to love people and some of them are going to walk away. You're going to love people and some of them are going to, are going to reject you and betray you. You're going to love people and some of them are going to be too proud to let you come alongside them. You're going to love people and some of them are going to think that, um, that, that they're just, they're, some of them are going to try to use you to get what they want, which is what some of Jesus' disciples were doing. It's going to happen. It's part of it. It's part of family. It's part of life. It's part of what it is. And if we, we have to love like Jesus. We have to lead like Jesus. We have to serve like Jesus. Because ultimately, that's the goal. And that's what drives us. And that's what compels us and what we're to be about. And the kind of leadership uh, really blesses the whole church. And it costs us something. But it's worth it. It's worth every bit of it. Because Christ's church is worth his life, and he gave his life for it. 
1 Corinthians 15 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, we, we serve because Christ served. We serve because there's a great reward to come. We serve because we know one day that we will be with him and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We serve because we love those around us and we want to see them come to faith in Christ. We serve because we want to show off the glory of God in our world. We serve because we see a city around us of people that don't know a Savior and don't know what it is to have certainty of their salvation and they need to know. And we serve because as we work together, God grows his church and he, he, um, he's glorified in the way in which we operate. So let me pray for us. Father, would you help us even now just to kneel? Just to kneel before you? That we might be as those who cannot save themselves, but those who are, need to be accepted, even in the brokenness. Father, did you help us to rest in your grace, to rest in your love? Father, we would love one another because you first loved us. Father, it starts with you. It starts with your grace. It starts with your invitation to be your child. Father, would you make us humble men and women who rest in your love? Father, would you also make us strong? Would your grace build us up? Father, as we work together, Father, would you strengthen our conviction? Would your spirit birth life in us? Would you give us joy? Father, would you confirm your goodness upon us? Would you help us know that your church is being built up? The gates of hell will never prevail against it, but that your will will be done. Father, would you help us to serve one another, love one another, Father, in all things. Lord, would you be lifted up and exalted in your church. Christ is the head. Would you have your way in our midst? Build us up as you desire. Pray it in your name. Amen.